listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. So we're continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount. And nothing fancy, we've just been taking this sermon, which covers all of chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. And we've been in it since September. We will probably be in it through July. So that's, that's where I project that we're going to be finishing this series in July. But we've been looking at it passage by passage and just taking it as it comes. And these three weeks, which includes this week, this is the third of the three weeks, this week as well as the two previous weeks are probably the three most difficult passages for me uh, as a preacher when it comes to preaching the Sermon on the Mount. They're the most challenging. Um, If you were to ask me, Ryan, give me a list of three things that you would never want to preach on. I have preached on these three things back to back to back. (laughs) Um, Two weekends ago, I preached a sermon on lust. Come on, who wants to preach a sermon on lust? And then last week... I had the honor of preaching on the topic of divorce and remarriage. And that's a fun one. Uh, I did the best I could with that. And then this week, as you may have read ahead, and you're all here to see, okay, what's he going to do with this? Um, We're looking at a passage where Jesus prohibits the swearing of oaths. So that's what we're going to deal with today. And i got to just be honest with you, I've... I've just been dreading this. Like, what, what am I going to do with this? And then as I was preparing the sermon and looking more deeply at it and studying, I realized, man, there's a lot of good meat here. There's actually a whole lot here that is worthy of our reflection and our time. And so I'm actually excited about this sermon. I think there's some really good stuff that we're going to get to. And then there's another thing that I noticed just this week as I was kind of going through it, rehearsing the sermon in my office. I realized that each of these three weeks, they actually, there's a common thread that pulls these three passages together, that ties them uh, together. So for example, two weeks, ago, two weeks ago, we talked about lust. What is lust? Lust is treating a human being as an object for the sake of selfish desires. And, and we saw that typically lust goes in one of three directions, the lust for money, sex, or power. But that's what lust is, treating human beings as objects rather than treating them as what they are, which is sacred beings made in God's image. And then last week, we looked at this um, passage where Jesus talks about the issue of divorce and remarriage. And what I hope I, what I, hope I succeeded in was showing you that actually the topic Jesus is dealing with isn't even so much about divorce. It's more about the the sanctity of women. That in that culture, you remember, in Jesus' day and age, very patriarchal, male-dominated world, where the men held all of the cards. And one thing that was very common, even for people that we, we would think of as being religiously devout, like the Pharisees, is that divorce was obscenely common. And, and it was very typical, even for those who claimed to be devout in their faith, it was very common for men to just treat their wives as objects. That, that my wife exists to suit my needs and my desires, and when she no longer 
is useful to me, I'm just going to cast her aside like a worthless object, which put these women in extremely vulnerable positions. We talked all about that last week. But it has to do with this idea of treating human beings as objects for the sake of personal lust. So you see those two things go together, and then we look at this passage that we're going to examine today, which is all about using our language as a tool to manipulate people as objects in order to pursue our own lust for money, sex, and power. So all of these things actually go together. It's not the case that these are just three arbitrary topics that have nothing to do with one another, and Jesus just has ADHD or something, and he just, he's just moving and bouncing around. No, remember, what is the whole law and the prophets? What does it all amount to? What does Jesus say that it all hangs upon? Two things. Loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Loving our neighbor as ourselves. This is what God is all about. I think this is really the mission of God in the world. This is what God is doing and what God's been at for, for since the very beginning. Is he wants to form us into a properly worshiping and just society, horizontally in our relationship with one another and vertically in our relationship with him. Loving God, loving people, this is what God is about, is forming us into those kinds of people. And so each of these three passages play into this whole purpose and mission of God to form us into just people that treat one another well, that love one another well. And that has to do with the personal lust that, that creeps into our heart. It, 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 it looks a certain way in our marriages and the way we treat our spouse. And then finally also in our speech patterns and the way we, we use our speech to relate to human beings. So all of this goes together. I want you to see that. All right, so you ready? So look at our passage now, Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. Jesus says again, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. <clears throat> Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. Now, just, just a bit of background. It was very, very common in, in ancient Jewish society in just ordinary social communication, in order to get someone to buy into what you're telling them, in order to bolster your own claim to truthfulness, it was very common for people to swear an oath. And it actually, for many people, um, became like this manipulative game, especially for the Pharisees. The Pharisees had all these different like, uh, standards about what kind of oath was binding and what kind of oath was not binding so that they can play games and manipulate people and say, well, this wasn't a binding oath. This was just a, a non-binding oath, whatever that is. I'm serious. I was just reading in Matthew 23, and, and Jesus goes off on them for that very reason. And, uh, and so they would say things like, I swear by heaven. I swear by the earth. I swear by uh, the holy city of Jerusalem. And Jesus is saying, I just want you to opt out of that whole game. I, just, just, I prohibit you from being like that in the kingdom of God. Now, 
just a point of clarification, because this always comes up in people's minds when we, when, when we look at this passage and study it. In my opinion, and through my own study, what I have found is that um, most scholars believe, and I would agree with them, most scholars believe that when Jesus is giving this teaching, this is not a prohibition against being placed under oath by various institutions that practice such things. Like if you're in court and you're asked to give testimony, or if you're about to be sworn into public office, um, most scholars believe that what Jesus is saying here is not necessarily applicable to those types of scenarios. For one thing, we know that Jesus, at the end of his life, he was uh, put on trial by the Sanhedrin, which we know would have required some form of, of oath in their culture. Uh, we also see several times, about four times in the New Testament, where the Apostle Paul appeals to God as his witness, which is exactly what an oath is. So Jesus is not saying that you cannot do what is required of you by a legitimate God-ordained institution. He's simply speaking to you as a believer, as a follower of Jesus' way of life, not to resort to oaths as a way to bolster your own claim to truthfulness. If you think about it, the whole reason why we even have legal oaths, it presupposes that people don't always tell the truth. So it's an admission that we live in a world of lies and deceit. So we have this distinction between ordinary speech and speech under oath. Well, I, yeah, I said that, but I wasn't under oath. Or I, I said that, I agreed to that, but I didn't sign on the bottom line. I can't stand those kinds of people, right? And so this, this is... This is what Jesus, this is the culture Jesus is speaking into. And remember, what is Jesus doing in the Sermon on the Mount? He's giving us a vision of sorts. He's given us a picture, an image of what human life can be, should be, one day will be under his reign completely. Jesus is saying, this is where I'm taking you. This is where I'm bringing you. If you're following me, this is the tra trajectory we're going in. This is the direction we're going in. And one day when Jesus comes back, everything's going to be made perfectly right. And in that perfect kingdom society, there's not going to be any form of deceit. Amen. There's not going to be any dishonesty. There's not going to be any of that type of thing. So what Jesus is telling us in the Sermon on the Mount is, since this is where I'm taking you, and since you already belong to this, since you belong to the age, age to come, since you come from the future, remember that sermon? He's saying, I want you to already be there now. I want you to live like it now. So right now, be a person of such integrity and such wholeness and such truthfulness that other people don't even need you to give an oath because they know you're a person who sticks to your word. You say what you do. You do what you say. Your yes means yes. Your no means no. Jesus is saying, be that kind of person now. And as such, you are a preview of the coming attraction. You are the first fruits of the coming harvest. You're giving people a glimpse. This is what it is like when the world is under the reign of Christ. I want to be a part of that. Amen? All right. Now here's the great danger in lying. Of course, you hurt other people, but the, the great danger of lying isn't even so much that, nor is, it, nor is it that you even just become a liar. The greatest danger of practicing deceit is that you yourself 
become a lie. You become a deceitful soul. And as time passes throughout that span of your life, as long as there's this pattern of contradiction between your speech, your word, and the way you live, you eventually uh, lose your soul. You ruin your soul. I think most of us here have had the unpleasant experience of at some point in our life encountering someone who might be called a compulsive liar, an incorrigible liar, somebody who, who has trafficked in lies for so long they can no longer even tell the difference between truth and deception. And deceit has become so ingrained in their ordinary communication um, it's become such a part of their life that sometimes they lie even when there's no apparent advantage to it. And it's very sad, it's very tragic when you meet these people because when you see what's happened, what's happened is they've lost their sense of self. They've lost their grounding. They've lost their bearing. They've lost who they are. They've lost their soul, in other words. They can't even stand up and say, this is who I am. They've lost their soul. And, and as such, they become prey to the malevolent forces all around them. You see, when we begin to engage in a pattern of deceit, the first person we must deceive is ourself. We tell ourselves, I can begin to traffic in lies and yet still keep track of the truth. And I can begin to indulge in lies without being corrupted by them. And that's a lie. And so the liar becomes the primary victim of his own lies. And he becomes, he becomes a lie. He becomes a deceitful soul, a false human. Now this morning, I want to tell you a story. But it's not my own story. It's a story that's written by an author named Oscar Wilde. He wrote a novel called The Picture of Dorian Gray. How many of you are familiar with Oscar Wilde? At least you've heard his name. I, I want to show you a picture on the screen. I just want you to see what he looks like over here on the right side of the screen. And then on the left side, you see a picture of the front cover of his novel. And first, let me give you just a bit of information on the author, Oscar Wilde. I want you to know a little bit about him. Oscar Wilde was uh, an Irishman. He was born in Dublin in the year 1854. He was a poet, a playwright, he was, he was an actor, and he was also an author. And he was something of a celebrity in his age. He was very well known, especially in England and France. He was one of those people that everybody talked about. You know, if he were alive today, Oscar Wilde would be on the cover of People magazine and Time magazine and TMZ.com and all of this craziness. Oscar Wilde also lived a very, very decadent life in a, in a very particular, intentional way. He just kind of made it one of his missions of life to set about breaking every moral norm of his society. Every, every moral boundary that existed, he wanted to just break through the walls. And he lived a life of total excess and wickedness and immorality of every kind. And that was really like something that fueled him. It was, he made that the mission of his life. 
Now, there's one novel that he wrote. He didn't write any other novels. There's one novel, and it's The Picture of Dorian Gray, the one I want to tell you a little bit about in a moment. It's very, very popular even to this day. They've made uh, numerous movies out of this story. It's a very intriguing story. But it's, it's fiction, obviously, but it's also something of a confessional. It's autobiographical. And you'll see what I mean in a moment. <clears throat> but it's the story of um, a young man named Dorian Gray. And Dorian Gray is a very, very handsome young man. And actually, at the very beginning of the story, he meets this portrait artist. And when the artist sees him, he, he wants to persuade Dorian to allow him to paint his portrait because the artist sees him as sort of like this paragon of male beauty. And so he's able to convince him to sit for his portrait. And so the artist uh, paints Dorian's portrait. And after he completes the portrait, he shows it to Dorian. And Dorian just immediately is, he falls in love with the portrait. He loves it. And he ends up making a wish, kind of a secret wish. And the wish actually comes true. He actually, he essentially sells his soul in order for his wish to come true. And nobody knows about the wish. And what he wishes is that he would always look exactly like the young man in the portrait. And that instead of Dorian Gray himself aging, or even more importantly, uh, bearing in his face the marks of sin and, and living a life of just total excess, he wishes that instead um, all of those things would be made to bear upon, instead of his own face and body, on the face and the body of the young man in the portrait. So the young man in the portrait would age and change and encounter the marks of sin in his countenance, but that Dorian would always look just like he did on the day his portrait was painted, that he would never age and never change. So you following me so far? So there's like a supernatural element to this story that makes it rather intriguing. But what I want you to notice is that what he's actually wishing for is that there would be a lack of integrity, that there would be a lack of wholeness, and that there would be this difference between this image that he presents to the public world and the reality of who he truly is in his inner life. Well, he wishes for this, and he sells his soul in order for it to come true. And, and just a few days go by, which, you know, that's not a whole lot of time for there to be a, a lot of change. But even just after a few days, Dorian goes and he gets this portrait, and he, and he looks at it, and, and he actually notices that there's already, after just a few days, there's already a subtle change I mean, you could barely see it. But when he studies the young man's face, he, he looks at the smile and he sees that already the smile is beginning to morph and it's changing and it's, it's actually beginning to look a little bit more like a sneer. And so he knows now that it's working, that his wish has come true. So he takes this portrait and he stashes it away in this hidden room in his house and he locks the door. And he prevents any of his servants, any of his family and friends from ever going into that room. And what follows is that for the next 18 years, Dorian embarks on a life of just total wickedness. 
and sin and immorality and excess of every kind. And he hurts a lot of people and he uses people. There's even a murder that's committed during this time. Um, he, he just uses women indiscriminately. And yet throughout that entire span of time, 18 years, his countenance, his face never changes, never ages. None of the marks of those sins come to bear on his face. He still looks exa- exactly the same. But day by day, week by week, month by month, year after year, the marks of every single sin that he committed, there would be some effect of it upon the portrait of Dorian Gray locked away in that secret room. And from time to time, you know, Dorian, he can't resist from going in and and just taking a glance at that portrait. And over time, the portrait actually became not just marred, it became hideous, monstrous, repulsive. So much so that, that simultaneously, on one hand, he can't bear to look at it, but on the other hand, he can't bear to look away from it. He's just spellbound by this portrait because this is the one thing in his life that actually is telling him the truth. This is who you really are. This is your true self. You show one image to the world, but this is your true self. And it's just very deeply disturbing to him. Well, one night he ends up finding the artist who painted this painting all those years ago. And of course, the artist knows nothing about this wish or Anything like that. He just remembers that he painted the man's painting years before. And he finds this artist and he um, brings him and he shows him this portrait. And uh, when the artist looks at the portrait, he's totally shocked and horrified. And when Dorian sees his reaction, he's taken off guard and he becomes enraged. And he ends up taking a knife and he murders the artist and gets rid of the body and actually gets away with the crime. Some more time passes, and finally on on another night, for one reason or another, Dorian decides to go in and look at this painting, and at this point, the painting has become such a hideous monstrosity. He He can't even put his eyes on the painting. And he just hates it. He loathes the painting. Of course, what he's really hating is himself and what he's become. And he takes this knife, that he, the same knife that he had used to kill the artist that he sort of obsessively cleaned, and he plunges it into the painting, trying to destroy the image. So he plunges that knife into the painting. And in the house, the servants, they can hear this blood-curdling scream and they're able to detect that it's coming from that locked room that they were forbidden from entering. And so they call the police, and the police come over, and they're able to bust down the door, and the police enter the room. And here are the very last sentences of the book. When they entered, they found hanging upon the wall a splendid portrait of their master as they had last seen him in all the wonder of his exquisite youth and beauty. Lying on the floor was a dead man in evening dress with a knife in his heart. He was withered, wrinkled, and loathsome of visage. means he was ugly. It was not until they examined the rings on his fingers 
that they recognized who it was. So that's how it ends. It's, it's a pretty sensational story, but it's a parable. And it's all the more remarkable because it's a story written by a man who, as he's writing it, is very busy living a life of total excess and wickedness of immorality of every kind. And yet, it's almost like Oscar Wilde has this prophetic foresight to know eventually where this life that he's living is going to take him. And just by way of epilogue, let me tell you about how the story of Oscar Wilde ends, the real-life historical figure who authored this novel. Oscar Wilde ended up dying at a very young age. He died at the age of 46. Um, And his death was in large part due to his excess and immorality. Uh, Some of you have heard that saying, nothing succeeds like excess. Sort of the credo of the rock star. Nothing succeeds like excess. That philosophy comes to us from Oscar Wilde. So he died at a very young age in the year 1900. But interestingly enough, during the last year of Oscar Wilde's life, he had a turning of sorts. He repented. He recognized the foolishness with which he had lived his life. And he actually turned to Jesus Christ. And he was baptized during the last year of his life. So there is somewhat of a happy story or happy ending to um, Oscar Wilde. But I want you to think, here's where we're going to close. I want you to think right now about your own life. Life is to be a beautiful thing. That's what God wants. I mean, God, the whole reason why you're here right now is because God has created you to in some way bear his image and reflect his image within the world. And folks, God is unfathomably beautiful. God is full of wonder and mystery and glory indescribably beautiful. And he's called you to, in some way, uniquely bear his image, reflect his image in the world. God wants your life to be a beautiful thing that when people encounter you and they get to know you, they say, wow. Your life, there's a sense in which you can say your life is actually a work of art that's being painted right now. And you are both the artist and the canvas. You are simultaneously the creator and the subject of of the art. So your life is a work of art that's being painted right now. I say, let's make it beautiful. Let's learn how to let go of the ugliness of pettiness and revenge and resentment and pride and selfishness. And over time, learn how to embrace the beautiful aspects of life. Grace and truth, generosity, forgiveness, and mercy. And as we do that, our lives become a beautiful thing. Amen. Or let me use the um, alternative metaphor of a tapestry. You know what a tapestry is. A tapestry is a, a woven hanging made up of all of these 
individual tiny little threads, and these threads are woven together in such a way that when the tapestry is complete, it tells a story. And your life is very much like a tapestry. And all of these little individual threads of your life are like sort of the the moments, the events that come into your life, a lot of which you have no control over. Some of them you do have control over. But you have thousands and thousands, maybe you have even millions of threads that are, that, that are part of this tapestry. And, and not all of those threads by themselves are beautiful. Some of them are rather ugly and horrific. The tragedies we experience, the things that people do to us, the things that people have said to us, sometimes our own foolish decisions. All of these threads are part of that tapestry, beautiful and ugly. But, but the, um, the amazing thing, about God, is God is so infinitely wise that when we surrender the trajectory of our lives to Christ, God has a way of taking all of these individual threads, good and bad, beautiful and ugly, and God can weave them together in such a way that when the entire tapestry is complete, the entire thing is beautiful. And it's not that God brought all of these individual threads to the tapestry. No, some of these things are part of the fact that we live in a fallen world. But God is so infinitely wise, he can take all of it and make it beautiful. Some of the most beautiful lives that history has witnessed have been lived by people who have encountered profound and horrific suffering. I think of someone like Corey Tin Boom who suffered through the Holocaust. And yet out of that somehow emerges this beautiful life. Or I think of Nelson Mandela, who spent years in prison. And out of that emerges this beautiful life. Or you can think of Mother Teresa, who actually voluntarily dove into suffering and poverty, embraced that aspect of the world. And yet, out of her life, she, she, she makes this beautiful piece of art. And when you think about Mother Teresa, when you look at her face, when you, when you imagine the countenance, the face of Mother Teresa, she doesn't resemble anything like what you and I would call a supermodel. You know those ubiquitous supermodels that all look exactly the same? There's, you can't tell one from the other. When you look at Mother Teresa's face, she's the furthest thing from that. And yet, when you, just, when you just get a glimpse of this woman, something instinctively tells you, this is a beautiful person. You look at her weathered, withered, wrinkled face, and you, you're, you're looking at, you know intuitively, I'm looking at someone who in a very unique way is bearing something of the image of God. Because she was an artist and she was working with the great artist to form a beautiful life. That's what God wants for us. But in order for that to happen, the artwork you're creating must be true. You must be true to yourself, to the core of your being. You can't have this duality of, okay, here's the image I'm showing people. Here's, here's the portrait or here's the, um, here's, here's the side of me that everybody knows and sees. But, but locked away in this hidden room is this portrait, my, my soul that I don't want anybody else to see. 
There's a term in the world of art. <clears throat> I don't know if you've heard the term before. The Saturday Night Crew did not know the term. Um, but it's this term, kitsch. Are you familiar with the word kitsch? No. Well, let me explain it to you. Thanks for your honesty, by the way. Most people just nod nervously. Kitsch, it's kind of hard to define, but you know it when you see it. Artwork that we would describe as kitsch is artwork that is aesthetically deficient, unoriginal, just tasteless copies that are mass-produced, and they hang on the walls of motel rooms everywhere. And it's technically, maybe you can call it art, but there's nothing inherently beautiful about it. There's nothing inherently distinctive about it. There's nothing about it that makes you say, wow. It's just tasteless, unoriginal, inauthentic, mass-produced. That's kitsch. And see, when you lose your authenticity and you sell your soul to the world system, you become a kitsch piece of art, mass-produced, and your life looks exactly the same as everyone else. When God wants you to be an original, authentically bearing his image in your own unique way. See, this is the crazy thing. Don't think that because everybody here is created to bear God's image that we're all going to look the same, that our lives are going to look the same. No, 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 no. God is so vast that it takes billions and billions and billions of us to faithfully reflect his image within the world. Because each of us is going to bear certain aspects of the beauty and the uniqueness of God. How many of you know that we live in a society that's very shallow, that, that wants to judge things based on appearances and image and all of that kind of thing? And I just want to tell you, when we get sucked into that lie, you yourself, you become a lie. You become inauthentic. You become grotesque. You become just a crude caricature of a human being. And God wants you to flourish. God wants you to be a real and beautiful human being who, whose life is a work of art. But in order for that to happen, you must be true to yourself and not begin to practice deceit and duplicity where I have one image that I show to the world, but I also have this hidden portrait that's locked away in a room that I hope nobody else ever finds. I want you to stand with me this morning. I was, um, why don't you just kind of close your eyes for a moment. I want this to be a, a moment of contemplation and prayer. I was, this morning I was praying the Psalm for the day, which those of you that are part of prayer school, you'll hear all about that on Wednesday, our final week. But the Psalm for the day is actually Psalm 51, a famous psalm that David wrote, kind of a confessional psalm after his sin had been found out with Bathsheba. And I just want to read maybe four verses. Or maybe, maybe I'll read a little bit further. I'll read about seven verses. And this really spoke to me, especially with this topic on my mind as I was preparing to preach this morning. But here's what I prayed this morning out of Psalm 51. Listen to this line right here. You desire truth in the inward being. 
Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. He goes on to say, create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me in a willing spirit. But notice David is saying, Lord, it starts in the core of my being. That's where you desire truth. That's been the theme of the Sermon on the Mount so far. Jesus is saying, let's get to the heart of the matter. I just, I, I'm not just interested in cleaning up the outside. That'll take care of itself. But let's get to the core of your being. That's where I want to transform you. Lord, you, you announce to the world, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I pray over our people. I pray over myself this morning in closing, Lord, that you would purify our hearts. May our hearts become purified through our practices of prayer and worship and, and community. Let the Holy Spirit purify our hearts of things like pride, self-righteousness, condemnation, resentment and bitterness, so that we can see, first of all, that we can see ourselves as the unique work of art, the artistic potential that you've placed in our own self. Help us to see the work of art that you envision of us. And Lord, may we also be capable out of that purity of heart to look at others, to look at one another and see the artistic potential, the unique facet of your beauty that they are called to reflect within the earth. Lord, may that be unveiled, may it be revealed, and may we all be part of that, that great unveiling and revealing for one another in the way that we speak, in the way that we treat one another, in the way we think of one another. May we call forth that beauty that right now you see so that one day the whole world will see it and behold this magnificent masterpiece that you're creating called the human life. May we reflect your image faithfully and may it start within our very being, our hearts, where you desire truth in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.